You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the 38th Psalm. The 38th Psalm. A Psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Yahweh, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Yahweh, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Yahweh. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on us for all the times we brush aside, ignore, try to get over as quickly as possible, all the times we dismiss your convicting work and freshly convict us today. Do not leave us to ourselves. For all the instances where we've hardened our hearts, seared our conscience a bit, have mercy on us today and renew an upright spirit within us. us. Give us tender hearts, consciences that have a hair trigger at your conviction to respond with repentance and faith. In Christ's name we ask this, amen. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is revered by many to have been the greatest preacher in the 20th century, was affectionately known by many in his day and still by some today as the doctor. And unlike Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, who is known as the heavenly doctor Sibbs, This has nothing to do with being a doctor of divinity in any way. Before he entered into the ministry, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Harley Street physician. 
Harley Street is a major medical center in London, which gives you some idea of a stature. But to bring that more to light, give you some ideas of his abilities, Lord Hoarder, Dr. Lord Hoarder, was first knighted and then a lordship bestowed on, upon him for his medical prowess. Uh, Lord Hoarder, who was the physician to Kings Edward VII, George V, George VI, Lord Hoarder personally chose Jones as his, uh, first as his junior physician while Lloyd-Jones was studying, and then he became his assistant physician and even remained uh, in Lord Hoarder's services as Lloyd-Jones entered into his own practice. He wrestled long with his call to the ministry, losing about 20 pounds. And part of what prompted this burden and his calling was whenever he was reclassifying a number of Lord Hoarder's cases, and he observed that most of those cases couldn't be classified under recognized medical criteria. So he'd read notes of something like, as his chief biographer Ian Murray puts it, read a note like, drinks too much. And it would point to... uh, Signs and symptoms with uh, origins normally outside the province of medicine. And looking back on his call to the ministry, he would one day say in a sermon, It's not often that I make any kind of personal reference from this pulpit, but I feel this morning that I must speak of an experience which bears on this very subject. When I came here, people said to me, Why give up good work, a good profession? After all, the medical profession, why give that up? If you had been a bookie, for instance, and wanted to give that up to preach the gospel, we should understand and agree with you and say you were doing a grand thing. But medicine, a good profession, healing the sick and relieving pain. One man even said this, if you were a solicitor and gave it up, I'd pat you on the back. But to give up medicine, ah, well, I felt like saying to them, if you knew more about the work of a doctor, you would understand We but spend most of our time rendering people fit to go back to their sin. I saw men on their sick beds. I spoke to them of their immortal souls. They promised grand things. Then they got better. And back they went to their old sin. I saw I was helping these men to sin, and I decided I would do no more of it. I want to heal souls. If a man has a diseased body and his soul is all right, he's all right to the end. But a man with a healthy body and a diseased soul is all right for 60 years or so, and then he has to face an eternity of hell. Oh, yes, we have sometimes to give up those things which are good for that which is best of all, the joy of salvation and newness of life. With this, Lloyd-Jones intended not to disparage medicine in any way. What he was addressing were those who would disparage the ministry. But the reason I bring that up at all is to bring out this connection that the doctor makes between sin and sickness. He saw that several cases that the true cause of their misery wasn't anything medical, but had to do with sin. It's a connection that we can see in our text this morning. And it's one that often makes us uneasy. In an evangelical church, you can talk about sin and speak of conviction. And you can talk about sickness and offer comfort. But speak of sin and sickness. And people begin to shuffle. And they grow uncomfortable. However nervous it makes us, though, if we're to set off on the right foot... We must say this much, that all sickness, indeed we can say all sickness, all suffering, all sorrow, is rooted in sin. Adams. They are the fruit of sin. Now that doesn't say everything, but we must not be ashamed to say that much. And we can also say this, not all sorrows are due to a particular sin in your life. 
And not all your sins result in sickness. And thus we can come to this conclusion. There is not a one of us that suffer even a billionth of what our own sins deserve. Now, as we begin to look at this psalm and we take it up, we notice that it opens and closes with a plea. We have a plea in verse 1, then another plea closing it out in verses 21 and 22. And in between, David will speak of conviction within, verses 1 through 10, and conflicts without, verses 11 through 20. And the opening plea is a peculiar plea. It's a saint's plea. It's not only a grace-longing plea, it's a grace-filled plea. What David asked for here is not what sinful man left to himself ever prays. Whenever, even whenever he's, he is suffering sickness and there's conviction of sin alongside that sickness, sinful man does not pray in this way. Oh, Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David doesn't ask for exemption from suffering, period. He does not ask to get a pass on any enduring punishment, rebuke. He doesn't ask for immunity or shielding. He asks that there not be anger in the rebuke and wrath in the discipline. And you sense in this, don't you, that David, in the way he's pleading, acknowledges that with this, he's crying out for a mercy. Discipline and rebuke from the Lord. If you're a child of God, come as a mercy. And so I want you to to just learn this. Learn how to pray in the midst of any kind of any kind of sorrow, learn how to pray, bearing whatever might be God's hand in it as a mercy. Thomas Brooks writes, He that hath deserved a hanging hath no reason to charge the judge with cruelty if he escape with a whipping. And we that have deserved a damning have no reason to charge God for being too severe if we escape with a fatherly lashing. The redemption that we have in Christ exempts us from wrath. But it also makes us sons. And precisely because we are sons, we can expect discipline. And learn from David how to cry out to God when under discipline and not despise the discipline of the Lord as The wise man in Proverbs exhorts us. Spurgeon's rephrasing of this first plea is illuminating. Chasten me if thou wilt. It is a father's prerogative. And to endure it obediently is a child's duty. But oh, turn not the rod into a sword. Smite not so to kill. So what you have here is a son's plea, but it's not simply a child of God's plea. It's a mature son's plea. A sinner who never prays other than when under suffering will pray, deliver me from this altogether, all sickness, all sorrow, all suffering. But David's plea is not to escape all discipline. It is to Not no forsakenness in that discipline. Verse 21, do not forsake me, O Yahweh. O my God, be not far from me. And you see now what really scares David. It's not the discipline itself. It's being forsaken. And knowing only God's anger in that discipline. What David is crying out for is not simply his comfort. He's crying out to be near the one who is his comfort, even in the midst of discipline and rebuke. The reason sin brings death is because it separates us from life. David doesn't 
he cries out for life in the sense of he wants God himself. The sinner wants a kind of half-life. They want to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of evil and chase that down with the fruit of the tree of life. They want a life to persist in their sin. David wants the one who is life. Saints, in your sorrow, seek this solace. Not to be far from any and all suffering, but to be near your Savior. Now, if David stands ready to, con- to receive discipline, though, why is he crying out as he does? Well, because with the discipline, he senses, he feels as though there is wrath, as though there is anger. He feels only the rod, and he wants comfort and assurance that the Father's hand is still there wielding the rod. God's conviction and His correction have so pierced and pressed upon David that he feels as one who is abandoned and forsaken. And this is the mercy of God that draws David's heart back to God. This is the wisdom of our God in His discipline to sometimes hide His face so that we feel only the rod. Saints, Surely you understand what David is speaking of here if you are truly his. Have you never felt the piercing arrow of the Lord? Have you never felt his hand press hard down upon your soul? If you're wondering, what does that feel like? It feels as though there's no soundness in your flesh, as though there's no health in your bones, verse 3. It feels as though your sins are at the same time an ocean in which you sin and a weight bearing you down to plunge you beneath it. Verse 4. feels as though you have wounds that stink and fester. Verse 5. You are bowed down and prostrate mourning all the day. Verse 6. Your sides are filled with burning You are feeble, you're crushed, verse 7. You groan because your heart roars and throbs. You have no strength, no light in your eyes, verse 10. And in light of this description, some have speculated that David is sick. That God's punishment of David that is bringing about his realization of a sin and conviction, that part of God's discipline is a sickness. You remember whenever King Uzziah played priest and he was stricken with leprosy. So the idea that a sickness can come upon someone because of sin, it's not alien, it's not without precedent in the Scriptures. We see it many times. But I don't think that's what is happening here at all. If David is sick, and I do think he's actually physically ill, But if David is sick, I do not believe the explanation of what he's speaking of here is that he's sick because of a sin, but he's sick because of conviction of his sin. Saints, have you ever been so hit with conviction that you lose your appetite? That you want to throw up. Has the arrow of conviction ever pierced so deep. That your bones ache. Has his hand ever pressed down upon your soul. So that you bow. You feel the weight of it. That heavily. Now. Imagine this is your state. And imagine that you want to ignore any element of sin in this. You go to a secular materialistic doctor or an unbelieving therapist or friend. What would their counsel be to you? I think what, 
what you think their counsel would be to is, is often what you might counsel yourself as well if you're bent on holding on to your sin. Just review the symptoms. There's no soundness in my flesh, no health in my bones, my wounds stink and fester. I go about all day mourning, my sides are filled with burning, there's no soundness in my flesh, I'm feeble and crushed, my heart throbs, my strength fails, there's no light in my eyes anymore. Well, one might say, you're not sick, you're just depressed. So if you'll feel better, you'll get better. The other might say, you're not depressed, you're just sick. And if you get better, you'll feel better. Now mind you, I'm not speaking of all instances and cases here. I'm speaking of the specific one that David is presenting here. I'm speaking in regards to the sin-sick soul. And whenever the sin-sick soul seeks out and takes such counsel, he takes poison. All of these counsels he might receive are not a solution. They are simply masking They're treating symptoms and masking the real problem. Man is holistic. You can sometimes, many of you, no doubt, you've had this experience if you live on this earth. You've had some physical ailment. In the midst of that physical ailment, it begins to take its toll on your soul. But the opposite can occur as well. You can have a weight on your soul that begins to take its toll on your body. Man is holistic. Spurgeon says, soul sickness tells upon the entire frame. It weakens the body, and the bodily weakness rests upon the mind. And here's where I believe we fail in making a proper diagnosis much of the time on this. There are times whenever we should feel miserable. Man in sin should feel miserable. The saint in unrepentant, hardened sin should feel miserable. Many a man's greatest problem is that he's not yet been made miserable enough to truly recognize his misery and deal with it properly. Solomon knew this. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Too much misery is masked by medication, suppressed by lies, avoided by entertainment, numbed by substances. We want therapy. We want distraction. We want some kind of alteration of our mood so that we can go on feeling good while we sin too often is our real aim. Imagine you tell a friend, I'm consistently, or a friend tells you, and this friend is is a is just enjoying his sin. I'm excessively happy all the time. Just continually happy. You would never say to him, you need therapy. But if he comes to you and says, I'm, I'm constantly sad and mourning, well, perhaps you need, some, you need to see a psychiatrist. Whenever the reality might be that that sinner is sickest whenever he expresses his joy. And he was approaching nearest health when he spoke of his misery. This is not to deny the goodness of medicine, the need for therapy, the brokenness of the mind. 
It's only to beg this question of the saints. Have you never read the Psalms? Have you never known what the saints have long spoken of as a dark night of the soul? Have you never been pierced by an arrow from above or felt the hand of our Lord heavy upon you? Sinful man may need many things, but he does not need anything more than he needs Christ Jesus, the good physician. And saints, here we're dealing with David. You and your brokenness and your fallenness and the curse may need many things, but you never need anything. Especially whenever the problem is a soul sickness, a sin sickness of the soul. You never need anything more than you need Jesus. You can see in this instance, David clearly knows. This is what I'm calling for. You will know. David clearly knows why. Here. And you will know why. And I'm calling for you don't suppress, don't ignore, don't try to reroute and go around God's conviction. David knows why. Why does he feel this way? Verse 3 There's no soundness in my flesh. This is why I think it's clear this is conviction that's bringing about an ill, a, a feeling ill rather than a feeling ill that's caused David to perk up and be convicted. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. Two causes. His sin and God's rebuking that sin. His wounds, verse 5, are because of his foolishness. Thomas Watson said that sin is the womb of our sorrows and the grave of our comforts. Is all your sickness rooted in a particular sin? Again, revisit that. Certainly not. But every sickness should be viewed as an opportunity for examining sin in our life. Now, I don't want to make you nervous or anxious because many of you have this kind of struggle. A sickness comes along, what have I done? You begin to ask. There are only two ways that you can know if a particular illness that you're dealing with is due to sin. One, whenever the sin results in the sickness, a hangover due to drunkenness, you can know why. You're dealing with that sickness. Cirrhosis of the liver due to habitual drunkenness. You can know why you're dealing with that illness. The second way you can know, revelation. And as none of you are prophets, you've only got number one. And the secret things belong to the Lord and the things that are revealed belong to you that you might do them. So stop trying to figure out whether or not you sinned. And that's the result. That's why the sickness is. Instead, do what He's told you to do if you see any sin. Sickness, you might not know whether it's due to a specific sin. You can't, unless, unless it's clear. You got that clear cor correlation. You won't know. But sickness can act like a smelling salt. To rouse us from our comfort and ease and slumber. To then look at ourselves with sober eyes and see sin that we've been ignoring. Now, just because the sickness has opened your eyes so that now you see a sin does not mean there's causality. It just means the goodness of your God in using that sickness for good. He used it. Does not mean causality, just means God's goodness in using it. But the particular sin, again, 
excuse me, the particular sickness and sorrow that I think are being addressed here are not those that arise because of our sin. They arise because of conviction of sin. And the way to deal, the only way to deal with that kind of burden is to bring your sin into the light, to expose it, to confess it. And unfortunately, we will try everything else first. And we'll try to even convince ourselves that we're doing this when we're not. We'll play at confession. We'll half expose. We try to deal with our sin lightly. We'll make a kind of half-hearted repentance. Promises of repentance. We want to get over deep sorrows as quickly as possible so that we can go back to enjoying our superficial joys. But if you try anything other than what you see David doing here to deal with your conviction of sin, you try anything else and whatever cure you think you found, it will only make you worse. The worst cure is the one that will make you feel best while you remain in your sin. There is only one remedy for the sin-sick soul. You must cry out to the great physician, the very one who is causing your pain like a surgeon. That piercing arrow that you think is from an angry God, if you are his child, is really just the surgeon's scalpel. And he will persist in causing you pain to heal you. And he has told you the position that you must assume if he is to finish his surgery. You must bow in confession and repentance. And he will persist in causing the pain until you do so precisely because he is good and he refuses to allow you to destroy yourself. One Puritan put it this way, I am mended by my sickness, enriched by my poverty, strengthened by my weakness. What fools are we then to frown upon our afflictions? These, how crabbed soever, are our best friends. They are not indeed for our pleasure. They are for our profit. And when you bow, saints, in confession and repentance, take this comfort. Not only are your sins not hidden from God, your cries are not hidden either. Verse 9, O oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. Your misery is that your sins aren't hidden. Hidden. Your comfort is that your prayers are not hidden either. Hide your sins, and God will hide His face. Expose them, and know that your prayers are not hidden from His face. Now, in the face of suffering, sorrow, sickness, and sin, we must not only look at the whole man, we have to look at the whole man in relation to the whole world. So we turn from these con, this, this conviction within to these conflicts without. David's misery is not simply due to inner conviction, but to outer conflicts. As sickness may be part of God's discipline, so too oppression may be due to God's discipline. David often speaks of his being oppressed because of, God's, because of his righteousness throughout the Psalms. We've encountered that many times in book one of the Psalms. But here the picture is more complex. I think it's really helpful for us. We'll see it as we go along. But first, because of David's soul sickness, you see his friends and his family are distant, verse 11. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. They view him as though he has the plague, leprosy. A friend's withdrawal can sting more than an enemy's attack. 
A Pharisee's slap may sting the face, but Peter's denial stings the soul. And then further, as enemies seek his life, they lay plans for his demise, verse 12. And you're left to wonder at this point, with the conviction and the, the illness that David feels, I think it's clear, the conviction comes and lays heavy upon him so that he feels ill. But with the attack of these enemies, you're left to wonder, is it that they perceive David as he's convicted and becomes ill? There's an opportunity. Is that what's happening? Or is it that the enemy's attack is actually part of the discipline that has led to David sensing his sin, sensing his distance from God, and bringing about conviction? I think that's very likely. But it's not made clear. But regardless, it is clear, I believe, that this attack is part of God's discipline of David. And if not in a particular instance, we can say in a general instance this was true. For his murdering of Uriah, he was told the sword will not depart from your house. And you sense that David, David understands that. He, he submits to that. But the reason he cries out because he recognizes a, a perpetual sword fight is one thing. But the sword being laid up against your neck is another. So he's crying out. In contrast to his enemies who are plotting, scheming, David plays deaf and dumb. Verses 13 through 14. What are we to make of this? You remember whenever David fled Jerusalem due to Absalom's revolt, that on the way, a man of Benjamin, Shimei, cursed him and his servants, throwing stones at him. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. And David replied, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because Yahweh has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For Yahweh has told him to do it. It may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me, and that Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing today, for 2 Samuel 16. You have the same seemingly conflicting ideas happening in this instance here. We sense that this attack is due to God's discipline, and so David is crying out for mercy, and yet he's also crying out for justice, in verses 15 through 20. How can, how can David do this? Well, it's because before God, he owns up to sin, period. He owns up to his own sin and confesses it. And he owns up to their sin and prays for deliverance and justice. David's sin doesn't justify their sin. Just because David's sin doesn't make it okay for them to sin against him. And yet also he's acknowledging this here. Just because they're sinning in what they're doing to me does not mean that God is sinning in using their actions to discipline me. David suffers rightly under God's hand and cries out for mercy. And he suffers wrongly under man's hand and cries out for justice. Even whenever God's hand is using man's hand. We need to learn to cry out these two things in harmony. And that David's conviction within and his conflict without are so intricately related can be seen in that the same plea envelops both of these discussions of conviction within and conflict without. Do not forsake me, O Yahweh. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. David asking, don't rebuke me in anger. Do not discipline me with wrath. Means, deliver me from these 
enemies. Save me from their plots. Now let's return to our modern counselor. Having heard David's full disclosure, what would they say to David? You can overcome these haters. And you need to get yourself some better friends. Some friends that encourage you. Some friends that believe in you. David, you need to do some self-care. You're not that bad. You're a good guy. You need, you need, a, you need some self-esteem. Maybe some medication for a while. Whenever the sin is soul sick. Simply, let me say that again. Whenever the soul is sin sick, that's it. Whenever the soul is sin sick, take that kind of advice and the only kind of better you can get is worse. Suppress conviction with lies and you will sear your conscience, harden your heart, deafen your ears, Blind your eyes and damn your soul. Because sinners seek to avoid the slightest misery at all cost, they abandoned truly rich joy. Sinner, you may suppress God's conviction, but you cannot avoid His judgment. You might sear your conscience, but you will not subvert His condemnation. And the knowledge of of what you see in this psalm should terrify you. For this reason, William Plummer asked, If God's chastisement of His people make them cry out as they often do, what must the doom of sinners When God's hand shall take hold of vengeance. And on that day, when your misery is inescapable and eternal, on that day, whenever you are truly made miserable enough to know your misery, there will be no mercy. Your Prayers will be hidden when your sins are fully exposed. But today, if you will confess the evil of your sins and confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, God is faithful. And He's just. And He will forgive you your sins. And you might still, and you will. You'll have a multitude of problems that that doesn't solve. And you may need various other needs and afflictions that have to be met. But it will be well with your soul. You will not be forsaken as David was not forsaken. The king who was sinful was not forsaken because the king who was sinless was forsaken. That's the remedy. For the sin sick soul. And there is no other. As sons. uh, Saints let me speak to you. The son was crucified for sinners. That sinners might be saved as sons. And as sons. You may know the father's discipline. But you will not know his wrath and anger. Listen to David testimony in the 32nd Psalm and you really have to wonder especially after studying both of them you really have to wonder 
if the 32nd Psalm was written as an, in, in answer to the answer to this prayer. So God hears Psalm 38, and you're left wondering, did David write the 32nd Psalm as a result? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You could translate blessed there, joyful. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Saints, if like David, you have been keeping silent concerning your sin. If you've been trying to cover them up. Cover up no more. Confess it. And Yahweh will restore to you as He did to David. The joy of your salvation. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The heavenly Dr. Sibs gave this prescription. Grieve for thy sins. And then, joy that thou hast grieved. And go to God for the supply of all thy wants. The seeds of joy and comfort are sown in tears and grief in this world. But yet we know we shall reap in joy in the world to come. Eternal joy lies on the other side of sorrows fully embraced. There is no other way around it because there's no other way to God than through the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. And when we come to the cross more clearly than ever, we see the ugliness and vileness of our sin. And we are bowed down. And yet it is at the cross too that our heads are lifted up because there we see that because our King was forsaken... We may be forgiven. Let's pray. Father. Have mercy on your churches. Far too many are deeply sick and completely oblivious to it because they've so distracted themselves. Father, have mercy again on our souls. For the vain attempts we make at covering sin sickness. Father, I, I praise you for the remedy that's in Christ. And I pray our hearts are just leaning into conviction of sin right now with a welcome with openness, with thanksgiving. And I pray, we know we have an enemy, and he would like to heap 
conviction on top of conviction at this point. But I pray your word, as we come in obedience, that your word would speak loud and clear. Louder than his accusations, louder than the own lies we might tell ourselves on the other side of brokenness and contrition and confession. That if anyone will confess their sins, if any, and this is written to the saints, if we would confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so may we not add sin by disbelieving your word of promise. And so may that promise, any soul here, Father, I cry out, any soul here that's knowing some kind of conviction right now, I'm praying, first of all, that there be conviction. You open eyes, you expose. And that they would embrace it and they would confess. But after having confessed it, Father, I pray. I pray the conviction come because they're looking at the cross. And I pray comfort come because they're looking at the cross. And that whatever kind of wrecks we may be living in, under the curse in this day, we would continually know health of soul. Because we deal rightly with our conviction and we bring it before you, bowing in repentance and looking to Christ in faith and rising restored in the joy of our salvation once more. We ask all this with boldness because we know we have access, nothing to do with ourselves, but by the way made by our great high priest, shedding his blood and offering up his rent body. Through him we approach and draw near and cry out for grace. Grace to convict of us our sins and grace to cleanse us from our sins. And we praise and glorify you for that grace. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.